Listening to Energy 360 at CSIS. I'm Adam Semensky, your host this week. Today we will be discussing Japan's energy outlook. In recent years, we've seen many changes to Japan's energy mix, including a significant decrease in nuclear power after the March 2011 Fukushima tragedy and the subsequent heavy use of imported liquefied natural gas, LNG, and renewed attention to efficiency. Today, we are featuring Dr. Ken Koyama, Chief Economist and Managing Director of the Institute of Energy Economics Japan, and Jane Nakano, a Senior Fellow in the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. Ken, let's start with you. The IEEJ published its 2018 Energy Outlook uh, last October. Uh, Two of the key findings were that fossil fuels would continue to meet most of uh, demand out to uh, 2050, and that oil is still expected to remain the largest source of energy. Um, Why is it so hard to change our energy systems? What is it that creates this momentum? Uh, Thank you, Adam, for this opportunity. And uh, IJ's uh, outlook features uh, two regular scenarios. One is a reference scenario, uh, which is a kind of business as usual futures. And the other one is advanced technology scenario. We call it ATS, where we assume the maximum introduction of energy advanced technology to see what the technology can change the energy landscape in the world. Uh, In the reference case scenario, uh, as you rightly pointed out, we project that the fossil fuel demand, oil demand, coal demand, natural gas demand continue to dominate the global energy mix. And in particular, oil will remain the largest source of energy, mainly because of the uh, demand increase driven by transportation sectors. In particular, for the transportation sector, we think if the current momentum continues, the internal combustion engine will continue to be a very competitive source for transportation energy. We are seeing that the new technology like EVs or FCV or plug-in hybrid vehicle is growingly competitive, but in this difference case scenario, we assume that the current system is very likely to be in place. That's why that the oil share is so large, even in the year 2040 and 2050. And, and as I understand it, uh, Ken, and, uh, with population growth in uh, places like uh, Latin America, the Middle East, and, and parts of Asia outside of China, and continuing economic growth, this is another driver that pushes energy demand higher. Thank you very much for your comment. Yeah, it's true that uh, energy demand worldwide continue to grow, but mainly in the emerging economies, particularly in Asia. China is the largest energy consumer, but I think in the long run, India and ASEAN will become a very large energy consumer where fossil fuel demand is likely to continue to Right, still high. You know, one of the interesting things you mentioned, the advanced technology scenario uh, in your outlook, uh, I I recall uh, from one of your uh, presentations on this 
that it do does include the possibility that oil could be peaking sometime, maybe plateauing out, not growing as much as the reference scenario, uh, and that uh, other fuels like natural gas uh, being used to replace coal could grow. And in that case, natural gas in 2050 might actually exceed oil consumption on a global basis. But uh, I think that the role that natural gas can play it can be very big, but it's, I think that depends on one thing, that the competitiveness of natural gas. Natural gas in particular need to compete, for example, in the area of power generation, where there is a very strong competitor like coal in Asia and renewable and in some part of nuclear. So natural gas is a very good energy source to provide a life of many people and uh, to heat and to create uh, to produce power but i think that the fundamental issue is uh, competitiveness of right. price and keeping costs low and maybe technology could play a role there as well um, the uh, japanese government uh, is in the process right now of updating the 2014 um, overall energy plan and strategy. Uh, could you uh, give us some insight into, into how you see the, uh, that strategy uh, shifting and what are the key points of Japanese energy policy? Okay. Uh, Japanese government has a, a kind of regular review of basic energy policy. And the most basic policy document, we call it the basic energy plan. Strategy or strategic energy plan. And uh, about three years ago, uh, we made the last revision. So we are uh, in the need of revising it, this uh, strategic document. And I hope that sometime before summer this year, uh, the revision will be completed. And uh, during the process, uh, the specific advisory committee to revise the document is now uh, undertaking the discussion. And the main point is uh, how to position the, the nuclear power and uh, renewable power, renewable energy, uh, which is increasing quite rapidly in Japan. In case of nuclear power, uh, we have the official government target to reach uh, its share at about 20 to 22 percent in the year 2030s. And, uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, to reach that uh, target, probably we will need more than 30 nuclear fleet in the year 2030. But at this moment, only, say, four nuclear reactors is in operation. Uh, for this year, uh, we expect another four new nuclear reactors will be reopened. But beyond that, uh, the, there are so many uncertainties over the pace and uh, uh, pace of the nuclear restart. So how to achieve the nuclear target continue to be uh, one of the key elements for the policy discussion. And also, we are seeing the worldwide uh, phenomenon to see the very substantial decline in renewable power generation cost. How to accommodate that uh, contribution for renewable power in Japanese energy mix in economically viable way is the most important issue that uh, the government committee need to discuss now. The, uh, what about 
natural gas. And Jane, maybe you'd like to uh, jump in here and, and tell us what you think the opportunities are for U.S. liquefied natural gas exports to countries like Japan or elsewhere in Asia. Sure. Uh, natural gas has become an important source, uh, you know, in the aftermath of uh, Fukushima uh, tragedy when you know, many nuclear units were taken offline. Um, and as, you know, Japan's need was starting to emerge, I think, you know, the U.S. interest in export, exporting uh, U.S.-based natural gas, uh, you know, uh, began rising. And and there are many Japanese uh, companies that have invested in U.S. LNG export terminals and projects, and uh, we're expecting, uh, you know, a few or, you know, all these uh, projects coming online in the next uh, uh, couple of years. I think, you know, U.S. will uh, have very healthy share in Japan's uh, LNG import mix. But I think it's also interesting to see how, uh, you know, it's not just the share of uh, uh, natural gas being very uh, sort of essential for Japan's energy security uh, um, in, in the, the supply mix, but also the Japan, Japanese approach to uh, LNG has been uh, um, a lot more global, uh, in my view, which is to say that um, there is much uh, greater interest in seeing uh, regional uh, gas market, particularly regional LNG market, grow, become a lot more uh, competitive, much more transparent, also much more liquid. Uh, to that end, uh, you know, some of the exciting things out of Japan that I've seen in recent years is Japan's Fair Trade Commission's ruling, uh, although it's non-binding, but to uh, basically challenge uh, the destination restrictions in many of the uh, contracts. And and again, it's not binding, uh, but, you know, I think many, some of the, or, you know, potentially many of the importers uh, out of Japan may try to um, utilize that ruling uh, in their effort to seek uh, much more competitive pricing in future negotiations. Uh, so that's, that's definitely an interesting development. Ken, uh, Russia has uh, a lot of gas in the uh, western part of their country, and there have been um, many projects uh, talked about uh, to move Russian gas to China uh, and even uh, into Japan in some way or another, uh, maybe uh, through uh, pipeline activities or even LNG. Could you tell us what you think is uh, the status of uh, the opportunities for cooperation between Russia and Japan on natural gas? Uh, basically, the uh, advantage of uh, Russian natural gas or Russian energy resource to Japan or Korea, China, or Northeast Asia is uh, geographical proximity. The market uh, of Russian gas or Russian energy to these Northeast Asian countries is too close, very close market. So from the market point of view, uh, the short distance supply is uh, provide another flexibility advantage as well. So also, uh, so far that the Russian, uh, many, uh, most of the Northeast Asian countries heavily depend on the supply from the Middle East in particular for oil. So the increased uh, Russian supply can be regarded as a source of diversification as well. 
That's why, uh, from the viewpoint of Asian countries, uh, Russian gas and energy supply can be beneficial in terms of, in a, in a sense, energy security enhancement. And from Russian viewpoint, uh, Russian continue to depend heavily on the European market, traditionally. But uh, because of the many complications after Ukraine crisis, uh, Russian side need to diversify its export outlet. So from that angle, that uh, expansion of eastern bound supply is beneficial for Russian side. So that's why from these two issues, uh, Russia and China, Japan, Korea uh, started to talk about the potential collaboration in terms of energy trade and investment. But again, that uh, from the global point of view, uh, how to uh, promote or progress that uh, Russian cooperation with Russia is a kind of a politically sensitive issue, particularly from the viewpoint of Japan, because Japan is uh, a member of a G7 country, and also that uh, Japan is a uh, partner of United States. So we need to think about the international politics and international, say, situation. But the Japanese government is still quite keen to promote uh, cooperation with Russia. And uh, the government proposed that eight areas uh, collaboration uh, for the eastern part of Russia, uh, including energy sources, uh, energy uh, cooperation. So I'm very much interested in what is going to happen, particularly after the presidential election in Russia, uh, May this year. Jane wants to add something too. Please yes, do. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see how energy uh, uh, cooperation with Russia also seems to have a, a little bit of a geopolitical undertone to the extent that uh, Japan and Russia have unresolved territorial yeah. issue. And certainly, you know, Russian supply uh, is already an important part of Japan's, you know, gas mix. And it could, you know, the importance may increase. But aside from that, the, uh, energy cooperation it could also be uh, Tokyo's means to facilitate some sort of a discussion uh, on this, you know, unresolved territorial issue. And, and to a larger extent, I think, Tokyo may be counting on the centrality of energy exports to Russian economy as, you know, something that they can, you know, sort of leverage and, you know, having closer interaction, more investments from Japan to Russia could um, help, uh, you know, uh, more flexibility in, uh, in Russian uh, leadership stance on territorial issue. And, and as, you know, Ken just said, uh, there are all these areas of cooperation. When President Putin visited Tokyo in December of 2016, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, discussions and there are quite a few MOUs, if I'm not mistaken, that were signed. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how many of them will be, uh, uh, will, you know, materialize and, and whether they might have the impact that on the more of a, you know foreign policy or, or geopolitical issues that that perhaps some of the Japanese stakeholders intended uh, to have. I, it's uh, U.S. relations with Russia seem to be deteriorating, and construction of the Nord Stream pipelines one and two uh, um, side out in Siberia. The opportunities for Russia to uh, sell new gas to places like uh, China and, and Japan uh, seem to be pretty high. Uh, I guess there's a, a lot of politics there, and it seems to change 
almost daily here in Washington um, what the U.S. and Russia uh, policies are, are going to be. So lots of challenges, I think, associated with the potential uh, economic and energy benefits associated uh, with that as well. May I add one point? Uh, yeah, uh, in terms of the resource potential that uh, Russian gas and oil resource base is huge, but uh, when they s- we need to think about the marketing issues, uh, we need to understand that the current market condition, which is uh, characterized by the oversupply or, the, in other words, uh, the buyer's market. And uh, Russian potential supply need to compete with various other potential supply source, including United States, from supply from United States, Australia, the Middle East. So the situation is not very easy at all from Russian point of view. Uh, if the market situation is opposite or on the seller's market, it's much much, much easier. But uh, nowadays. Uh, that the seller side need to understand that uh, very competitive market situation. That's what I think is a very critical point for the point of the uh, relationship between the buyer and sellers. Yeah. Can that uh, uh, that thought applies? Uh, I think as well to one of the other uh, possible sources of supply uh, that now with uh, the Trump administration uh, there might be greater access. Uh, to drilling for both oil and natural gas in Alaska. And one of the things that's been talked about for a long time is the possibility of uh, building a gas pipeline from the north slope of Alaska uh, towards the southern area in Alaska and and converting it to LNG for sale to other countries. I always thought that that was, uh, you know, possibly an opportunity for Japan and uh, if the costs and competition were were right, uh, the competitive um, uh, cost structure. Uh, but uh, one of President Trump's recent trips, he uh, actually uh, got some interest from China mm-hmm. in in uh, looking at uh, Alaska and LNG projects. Uh, do you have any thoughts there? I think that uh, we. Uh, so with great surprise to see that the rapid expansion of Chinese gas demand or LNG demand, particularly in the last year, and if that uh, expansion continues, uh, there's a good possibility that China to uh, you can very to have a bigger appetite for U.S. LNG, including a supply from Alaska, and for Alaskan supply, uh, Asian buyer, including Chinese, Korean, Japanese buyer may uh, be able to find the uh, advantage of near supply, short distance supply, as compared to the Gulf LNG supply to Asia. And also it's a, a new diversification source from Asian point of view. So much depends on, again, that the competitiveness of the supply prices to Asia. But I think that potentially that Alaskan supply uh, will uh, enhance the security of supply to Asian uh, country and also to create the uh, development of gas, liquid gas market, which Jane mentioned earlier, uh, to the uh, to Asian market. So we are expecting that uh, some new development will progress 
costs could still be a hurdle. Jane, you've done a lot of work here at CSIS on the global LNG markets. Do you have a thought on <laughs> on this whole issue, how the LNG markets might develop in, in Asia Pacific and whether there's a, a role for Alaska in addition to the more traditional LNG from places like uh, the Gulf of Mexico or maybe even the Atlantic coast? Yeah, Alaska I mean, Japan does have a you know, relationship with Alaska dating back to late 60s. And going forward, as Japan's LNG demand is quite subject to the scope and pace of nuclear restarts, I think it may have to take diversify set of players coming into Alaska, perhaps. I mean, so... You know, it's entirely possible to, uh, you know, see, you know, Chinese, Japanese, and, and a couple other, couple other uh, uh, countries uh, coming in to figure out how to make it commercially viable. And that's one way of approaching. But I think, you know, Alaska, uh, you know, certainly, you know, and then a bigger sense, sort of a U.S. supply adding uh, the, you know, diversified source, but then also uh, uh, transportation route has a strong, strong appeal to U.S. allies in Asia. And to that extent, I think, you know, uh, despite, you know, challenges, I think Alaska will probably be always uh, on the minds of a lot of Japanese stakeholders. If I may also add another uh, angle of this U.S.-Japan natural gas cooperation, it was very interesting to see out of the the recent senior-level engagement between Washington and Tokyo to have um, the uh, you know LNG you know Japanese uh, interest in cultivating uh, uh, LNG markets in Southeast Asia or this ten uh, ten billion dollar commitment to help uh, develop the capacity uh, the you know, expertise in selling and I mean trading and receiving and, and utilizing gas in countries like you know in Southeast Asia or or South um, Asia. Um, it's quite interesting to me uh, how this initiative may sort of uh, kill several birds with one stone, which is to say that uh, you know the the current U.S. administration's focus on trade deficit is something that's you know driving part of this uh, um, greater LNG cooperation or trade. But as Ken said, you know, in the current market, it's it's a buyer's market. There's you know there's sort of um even among some players, you know, even there's even a sense of uh, overcommitment. So in the longer run, for countries like Japan to be able to, uh, you know, uh, get rid of some of the the overcommitted volumes, or you know, it's it's in in Japan and many Asian uh, economies be, um, benefit to see a lot more. Uh, 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 I guess you know, highly liquid and you know, active uh, market, and also more buyers, you know, emerging in Southeast Asia and South Asia. So to that extent, it certainly helps, you know, that sort of a concern from the Japanese perspective. It also speaks to Japan's strengths in you know having these LNG, you know, receiving terminal technology and etc. But then the third, the important one, the bilateral one, or the U.S.-Japan uh, aspect is that it also um, is, I think, cast as means to help uh, um, facilitate U.S. LNG's reach to Asia. Uh, so I think it's something that's, uh, that's you know, that certainly yeah, still warrants some attention as how, how that may uh, evolve in the future. But 
uh, in the, the context of U.S.-Japan natural gas cooperation to engage third party or to, the, to really expand the scope of the, the area in, in which U.S.-Japan can work together uh, is uh, quite remarkable. Lots of opportunities there. Can <laughs> uh, uh, Japan, uh, for many years, has uh, maintained uh, a relationship with Iran on on energy, with uh, crude oil uh, imports, and uh, and in in other areas. Uh, it seems that uh, Washington in a, is in a cycle of um, of trying to put pressure on Iran, uh, is, does this create uh, problems for uh, Japan in terms of its own diversification of energy supplies? Uh, how, does, uh, how does this shift in Washington thinking uh, look from the perspective in Tokyo? Uh, yes, uh, it is true that uh, Japan has a long standing relations with uh, Iran, in particular for energy trade and uh, uh, investment. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people in Japan uh, clearly understand that uh, most important ally is the United States. So uh, when the situation surrounding uh, Iran, particularly from the viewpoint of Washington, is changing, we should be very careful about uh, uh, the how we should uh, uh, develop the relationship uh, with Iran. But uh, we also understand that Iran is a very important country in terms of the Middle East politics and Middle East stability. And uh, we heavily depend on the Middle East oil supply. Uh, around 80% of crude oil is coming from uh, Middle East, even as of now. So for the stability of the Middle East, it's a very important element for energy security for Japan, and maybe not only for Japan, but maybe for, for the world. So we are hoping that uh, uh, U.S. policy towards the Middle East, including the policy toward Iran, is to uh, help stabilize the situation in the region and uh, bilateral relationship, is, we, as I mentioned, we are very, very careful. Uh, we try to uh, promote a good relationship for both countries, but at the same time, as I mentioned, the top priority given to the U.S.-Japan relationship. I know I've heard you uh, say, Ken, that, uh, that even things uh, like the Saudi uh, Vision 2030 coming from Saudi Arabia and Riyadh is uh, something very important to uh, the view in Tokyo as part of that effort to yeah. stabilize the entire yeah, area. That's true. Uh, in the recent years, we recognize that many of the Middle East countries, including Saudi Arabia, has a very strong desire and dream to diversify the oil-based economy or energy-based economy. Uh, so I think that it, this is a very right direction. Of course, it's challenging, but uh, uh, if Japan, uh, as a country with some technology or experience, uh, can help the diversify or upgrade their economy, I think this will help the stabilization of their own country and the region itself. So although we understand it is a challenging task, government and industry in Japan trying to uh, our best to help them. That 
result in the stability of the region and the stability of the energy market and enhance energy security to Japan. Yeah. Well, Ken, uh, you've reminded me that uh, that the number of issues that have to be considered when thinking about energy and oil policy uh, are are. Uh, larger than just one thing. There are environmental issues, there are economic issues, there are uh, concepts of, uh, of national security and and safety that all have to be balanced uh, against each other. And we really appreciate you coming here uh, to uh, CSIS to discuss these issues with us. Uh, this is Adam Semensky for Energy 360 at CSIS, and I'd like to thank Ken Koyama and Jane Nakano for being with us today. 